0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ashley playing with her mic. Oh, <laughs> well, there's the intro. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Remind podcast. I have the wonderful, the clear, the crisp, Ashley Morland, how are you today?
1: I am phenomenal with my new mic. <laughs> how are you doing today?
0: Very, very good. I'm very, very pleased that you've upped the mic situation. So it's a lot more clearer for our listeners. Even though the webcam did a decent, decent enough job, I think the upgrade was well and truly deserving.
1: Absolutely.
0: And so this week's episode, we're talking about why am I the way I am? There's a lot of Mm. I's and ams in that, but um, this is a big one. Now, this is something that's come off the back of some workshops that you've been doing and you really wanted to share it. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so we just finished week four of Rise and Thrive at the time of our recording of this. Rise and Thrive is the primary group program run by the Remind Institute. And we covered some really heavy things and it was really eye-opening for the participants. It was almost like pulling the rug out from underneath them of their structure of reality and what they believed to be true. And their whole life became something to reconsider. And I really wanted to talk about that today because i feel like this is so important for every single person on the planet to understand about themselves Mm. and really it's about understanding the impact of our early life experiences on us but also the impact of us and our nervous system capacity on our children and this is then really talking about intergenerational trauma And um, if you're a follower of accounts like the Holistic Psychologist, for example, she speaks Mm. a lot about um, cycle breakers. And Mm. this here, what we're going to talk about today, this here is the cycle breaker.
0: Cycle breaking. Okay. All right. So we're going to focus on why I am the way I am. I love that. Okay. Mm. So for me, if you were to ask me why am i the way i am it's um it's just because it's i am who i am right it's a fairly simple question to answer yet to do it properly it takes a lot more deep diving so um yeah you think about your education how you were raised where you were born the the life events that you've that you've got all of these are for me about the how i project that and my perception of the world really so here i am reacting to my environment based on what i perceive through my wounding through my healing through Mm -hmm. my through my everything so this is going to be interesting because i could see this podcast episode going in a couple of different directions you know perceptions (laughs) um values healing growth and all of that but it's really i think to summarize what we're going to be talking about today is why is it that i react or why is it that i think or why is it that i am this way in these situations because mm-hmm. to me that kind of that's who you are
1: yeah it's massive so if i want to start the conversation with an understanding of if you're a new listener, you won't know that I'm a neurophysiologist. My PhD was in neuroplasticity. And what that means is it's the ability of our nervous system to be adapted or changed in response to experiences or external stimuli. And I want to preface this by saying that really big emotions can come up with this realisation of what I'm about to explain and what we're going to talk about today. And the emotions quite commonly can be grief where when we recognise that there are parts of us that are suppressed and that our true self hasn't been able to be fully expressed or realised or actualized, there's a grieving process that we go through around those parts Lost parts of ourselves they're not lost they're just kind of disconnected but also there can be an element of shame and guilt that comes to the surface particularly if you are a parent because not only do you realize the experiences of the disconnected parts of you as a child but also how your own nervous system capacity or lack thereof is causing your own children to have to disconnect from parts of their self in order to be safe and connected to you. So I want to preface that by just saying it's normal for this revelation that we're going to talk about today to bring up really big emotion. But I want to let you know that the gap exists. The gap exists whether we choose to see it or not. The gap exists Mm -hmm. whether we keep our head in the sand and go, la, 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 (laughs) I don't see you. Because that's what unconscious means. Unconscious literally means to not see. Well, you so we, Yeah, to be unaware. So as soon as we realize that we have these, um, say, restrictions and limitations and conditions around our nervous system capacity, then we are actually empowered to do something about it.
0: Okay. Okay. So it actually sort of sounds like you're going to run us through a little bit of what you doing your course is is that is that the sense that I'm I'm getting
1: yeah we're going to go we're going to go there we're going to do a little okay. bit okay so it, this is just an education component that will bring about self-awareness that's it
0: beautiful <laughs>
1: so when you think about the nervous system capacity what that's really talking about is there are some things that feel safe some things that we can cope with And then there are other things that trigger us, activate us, that are exceeding our capacity. So to give you an example, when I was a child, my dad's nervous system capacity did not have the space for us to be noisy or to, even if it was like playing and laughing and all those kinds of things, that would trigger him. And then he would get angry and want to suppress us because his nervous system capacity couldn't cope with it. So it triggered a reaction, right? And what that did is it made my nervous system suppress the parts of me that like to have fun and like to express joy and like to laugh and be loud. So when I talk about that, does anything come to mind for you about parts of yourself as an adult that you had to suppress or change or adapt as a child Because you learned that this is how you have to be in order for mum and dad to be happy or in order for the house to be calm or...
0: Yeah, well, I say, well, the only... When I actively look back on my childhood to then sort of go, what's there? It's like my childhood was my childhood. I didn't necessarily question it. But some of the clues that I have, a bit like what you're saying, What are some of the things that I enjoy doing with my kids and what are some of the things that I don't enjoy doing? Or what are some of the things that trigger me with their own behaviour that then starts to point back to that? And so um, a lot of the time it would be, like I don't mind, like before if they were noisy I had a problem with that. I need them to sort of be, be quiet. So the best placebo for a noisy child is hello screen um and uh another big thing that i used to do especially when they were young i was highly disciplinary and i couldn't necessarily understand why but i just knew it was it was very important i was sort of very firm if i say no it's a no it wasn't this sort of no 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 yes because Mm -hmm. i remember as a kid for me, and this is not necessarily so much my parents, but it's more of a reflection of me, but how they how they responded as a parent. A no is just another layer to the ultimate no or yes. And when it's there's a a, when there's a no, what's the upside? A yes. When there's a no, what's the downside? Well, it's already a no. <laughs> and so um, I brought this in. But one thing that I I really did um was aware of, of and this is not because I at this stage had really done any work. It was simply if I say something to my kids, I want them to know that I mean what I say, so that as they grow older, they will have that I don't know why, but I really need to listen to him. But I also did think at that stage, the way I get there, well absolutely, and I use these words, you know, do damage to the child, not huge damage, but I knew that the way I was doing things was not without consequence. And I even mm-hmm. had family and my parents and all of that sort of saying, you're being too hard on the kids. And for, for them, that was true. For me, it wasn't. And so when I look back, obviously that's had some impact from when I was a child on how I'm going to be informed as a parent, because I didn't go to parent school like everybody else. Haven't done the parent course. Haven't done. Haven't, don't have the parent degree. Just kind of whoop. You fall into it. Boom. Congratulations! It's a boy or a girl. Actually, to start off with, Darcy. I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, one of our biggest listeners, by the way, Darcy, ten year old. Um, <laughs> and and so, uh, does that answer your question? I kind of went on a bit of a rant there. No,
1: absolutely. And so then I would pose the question of what were the things. What were the things that your children would have been doing or saying or how would they have been behaving that you would have come down on them because you needed to correct them in a disciplinary way? It was
0: simply listen to me do as I say. They may not have actually been doing that. I can't think of a moment in time, but for argument's sake, eat your dinner. I don't like beans. Well, there's... Seven on your plate. If I take four away, you can have three beans, right? I'm, I'm working with you. Mind you, this is like a two-year-old, three-year-old, right? I understand. This is, I was a, probably a little bit intense. And if she sat there for 20 minutes crying about it, I'm okay. Because at the end of it, you're still going to eat your beans and we'll be okay. Mm. Um, and so it was, but I felt that as soon as I started something, I had to finish it. And so it was more about them taking instructions and direction. More very not so much about them when they're actually doing stuff. Mm. But it would also be a follow-on from if they're doing something, I ask them to quieten down, you listen to me. If you don't listen yeah. to me, again, it's this sort of disciplinary do as you're actions. told. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah but isn't it was
1: that interesting.
0: But the the big goal was if I can do all this work now. Hopefully, as they get older, I can work with them on, okay, I say what I mean, I mean what I say. And if they sort of understand that part, then they can certainly question it, but at at the end of the day, that's what happens. And so if there is any, and I go quote unquote damage, because I didn't believe in trauma back then, unless it was like a plane crash or something. Something huge that I'll help work through those things um, later in life, and um, yeah, so interested to see your take on all of that. Mm,
1: that's massive. So I'm <laughs> remembering during COVID, I live in Melbourne, where we had the longest lockdowns in the entire world. No need to brag. (laughs) (laughs) There was a really funny thing that happened here in Australia and one of the politicians, because we were having daily um, updates on TV, and one of the politicians made a flippant comment about, go and get some Penadol and stay at home (laughs) after the narrative had been not to do that for a very long time. Anyway, I thought it was absolutely hilarious that, they, the news, um, like newspapers and news sites, were posting photos of in pharmacies, supermarkets, all the Panadol brand of paracetamol had been completely taken. And everyone was oh. up in arms because they couldn't get Panadol.
0: Also, oh, they're, they're looking for the, the brand. All the Panadol. other
1: paracetamol was right there. <laughs> And so wow. that is the perfect example as do as you're told. Go and get yourself some Panadol. Yes, sir. Go and got Panadol. There's no Panadol left.
0: Okay. And
1: I, that that absolutely cracked me up because I thought, wow, I don't want to raise people. I, I don't want to raise kids to become adults who just follow mm. orders without question.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And. I think that that's a really important point. So I have space in my nervous system for my kids to not argue back or or talk back or anything like that, but for them to bring curiosity to the table and actually question some of my decisions. And Mm. the beautiful thing about that is that I've then had an open enough mind to be able to go, that's a really good point. And sometimes I have been in a default automatic mode of you do this, but why? I don't know, because that's how it's done. And I'm reminded of this story where um, a woman every time she roasts a turkey, she would cut the end off the turkey, and her husband goes, "Why do you do that?" And she goes, "Huh, I don't know. My mum always did it." So then she rings her mum, and she goes, "Mum, why did you cut the end off the turkey?" And the mum goes, "I don't know, I just always did it. My mum did it." So then they ring the grandma and go, Grandma, why did you cut the end off the turkey? And she goes, well, in my day, the turkey was so big that it wouldn't have fit in my oven. But now we've got these 900 mil wide ovens. <laughs> and so it's this perfect example of we th- these little things are passed down the line, passed down generation and generation, but Which we're not questioning serve, it.
0: But it, it did serve served. at one time. Yes. But now it's the just... The oven's
1: big enough to fit the whole turkey
0: it's just mimicking. Don't, like, absolutely. It's, not...
1: it's just a learned pattern. And so wow. when my kids are asking me questions, I love that it opens up the opportunity for me to go, yeah, where did I learn that? Why do I want that? Mm. Why do I expect that of you? Does it even make sense? Does it align with our family values? Is it aligned with who I want to be as a mom, as a parent? And so I find that really funny and interesting, but I love that story. Anyway, so when we are kids, if Normally I would draw this, but given that this is an auditory thing for our podcast listeners, I'm going to use Mm -hmm. numbers to explain it. So let's say when I'm born, I am born 100% me, 100%. Mm -hmm. Loud, playful, joyous, cheeky, um, confident. I'm born 100% the person that I was created to be for the purpose that I'm put on earth for. But if my parents' nervous system capacity was triggered by the joyful part of me, well, guess what? I'm going to shut that bit down. If my Mm. parents' nervous system was triggered by the loud part of me, guess what? I'm going to suppress that bit because as a dependent mammal, as humans, we are dependent on our primary caregivers for the longest out of any other animal on on earth. Mm. Which means that if we don't have connection with our caregivers, we don't get food, we don't get shelter, we don't get um, all of our basic needs met. No affection, connection, anything. So it's a survival mechanism. Mum doesn't like it when I do that, so I might shut that bit down. Mm. I need to suppress parts of myself. Anyway, so what that does is that the loud part of me actually then becomes a threat to my safety and survival and my connection to my parents. So then as an adult, the part of me that is loud will be suppressed and any time where I do need to express and step into my full self, that part of me will activate a stress response and say, it's not safe for you to blah, you need to suppress it.
0: So suppressing parts of your true self.
1: Yes, and so we are as adults. We are nothing more than the adaptations we needed to be in order to sustain connection, and safety, and survival well, with our survival. caregivers. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, connection is essential for survival mm,
0: mm. because
1: if our parents don't feel connected to us, then they're not going to provide for us. Mm. So it's so big, and I feel like the key part of that. So let's say my parents. Um, nervous system capacity, let's say, was 30%, Mm -hmm. which means today I would only be, if I hadn't done any healing work and was still completely unconscious, I would still only be the 30% of my authentic 100% self that my parents could cope with when i was a child or not just my parents my sporting club my teachers my external mm. environment that mm. they could cope with and could tolerate for my survival that, which that means 70% to them. yeah which means 70% of who i really am is not tolerable not lovable not worthy mm. and it becomes a threat to my existence So, something as simple as even asking for help or expressing a need.
0: Well, that's interesting. So, you could, you know, taking that sort of one step further, let's just say you have a a trait or a quality that your parents actually enjoy and embrace, right? It doesn't actually activate their nervous system in a bad way, Mm -hmm. it activates it in a good way, or it's, you know, very easily tolerable. And let's just say this this one part of you you're able to express at a hundred percent of the the capacity you wanted to, but the ones that you're really triggering your parents for whatever reason, you're squashing right down. So it's almost like you're being forced to mimic, essentially, the not necessarily values, or but essentially behaviours that are soothing to your parents' nervous system. Yes.
1: It's an adaptation. So I learned at a young age that when I got an A at school, my parents were very happy. And so guess what I did? I studied my butt off. Even the things I didn't like studying, I studied my butt off. And that was actually really helpful. It got me into a great uni degree. It got me a PhD. I did very, very well academically. But that was a trauma response. Mm. Not to say that that was traumatic for me, but by me f- focusing on my education and really studying for the external validation and approval of my parents, it was to avoid the pain of rejection or abandonment or neglect and disconnection from my parents. Mm. But when, if I had have just been free to express myself and be good at what I was good at and not good at what I wasn't good at, it would be a very different outcome. Mm. Same with sporting, you know. I learned at a young age that when I won, I got validation. I was praised. I had connection and significance with my parents. Mm. And I remember um, one day when I was I was only very young, and I made a mistake in a BMX race and I lost. And when we got home. My dad had said, hop in the shower, and I hopped in the shower and I got flogged. And that taught me that it's not safe to lose. And if I want connection, I have to win. And guess what? I was a perfectionist who always had to win. I always had to be the best. If I wasn't the best, then I would have anxiety. But I always had anxiety because I couldn't possibly be perfect all the time.
0: Well, you can't win at everything, yeah. No, it was
1: suffocating. And during COVID, my husband and I were playing a game of cards and he beat me three games in a row in, you know. In one game, he beat me by like 32 cards or something. It was absolutely ridiculous. And I had a panic attack. I had a full-blown trauma response panic attack because I had lost in the game of cards and I wanted to flee. I was like, I'm not playing anymore. I'm going to go and brush my teeth and I had, fully had a panic attack. And what it was about was not the cards at all. It wasn't about what was happening in front of me. It was because my nervous system remembered that if I didn't win, I wasn't worthy of love. If I lost, it was unsafe. I was disconnected. I was rejected. And so the data in my nervous system, based upon my father's limiting um capacity his own nervous system capacity meant that that drove my behaviors in my adult life and guess what when my kids wanted to play video games with me all of a sudden I would notice the dirty dishes on the sink because it wasn't safe for me to play because if I play I might lose and if I lose it's not safe oh sweetheart I'll just do the dishes like I'm really busy right now just got to cook dinner just got to do this the dishes have been there all day but in the moment they want me to play that game where I could possibly lose, I notice the dishes and that's my escape route. Mm. If I just pretend to be busy by this rational and valid reason of doing the dishes, then I don't have to play. And if I don't play, I won't lose. And if I don't lose, I'm safe.
0: It's a massive share, Ash.
1: Huge. Huge by the nice way th- through my own healing work and the absolute vulnerability and humility or humble nature of my dad we have the healthiest relationship out of almost all the relationships in my life
0: so that's, a- that's amazing
1: it really is i'm so grateful for that because i've been he's been able to create the space for me to share about my experiences and mm. heal that with me it's really beautiful
0: and he would have learned that you know you yeah, from his experience this yes. with his parents yeah right it's not like you know i think when we sort of look at the amount of awareness around mental health and nervous system and trauma and trauma and all of these things our parents are only starting to get access to that now at the same mm-hmm. time as us yeah so it's sort of like when we look at what our parents did it's if if it's not they just it's not a sense of blaming them. It's not a sense of no. saying you should have done better, you should have known better, you should have protected me, you should have been parents, and you know, well, they were parents. They were doing the best that they could with mm-hmm. the information they had, from the upbringing that they had, that their parents had, that their parents had, that their parents had.
1: Absolutely, and, and, so, and that's not an excuse either. I know that can not, be very activating for people to hear that. Oh, they did the best ha- they could with what they had. Well, they should have done better. And if that's if that's your your experience, and if that's triggering for you, we are with you. You deserve so much more than that, which is why there's a grieving process because mm. you have to realize that you did deserve so much more. It's just that your parents did not have the capacity to be the parents mm. that you needed. And they Absolutely. my dad my dad didn't have the capacity to be the loving, present, connected, gentle father mm. because his nervous system had a limited capacity from his upbringing which suppressed mm. his full self so he could only operate with a capacity of 30% because only 30% of life and existence was safe for him which meant that he had to protect me and actually his mm. desire to push me his desire to um yeah praise me and push me when i so-called succeeded was because he wanted more for, him, for me than he ever got to have himself mm. and look he created a seemingly successful woman. I, you know, was did 10 years of uni, had a very successful academic career. I was dead inside. <laughs> like, I, I was absolutely suffocated by anxiety mm-hmm. on a daily basis and perfectionism and, and all those things. But he didn't have to worry about me because I was successful, earned good money. I could take care of myself and his role as my parent, effectively, was done based upon what he knew. He didn't mm. know about this stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you look at sort of our dads and then our grandparents, well, our grandparents lived through World War II, whether they mm-hmm. actively participated or were affected by it from the ripple effect of the, of the war. And then you go back another generation and it was their dads that went through World War One.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so you've got this sort of, well, we've never experienced what it's like to be in a, in a world war, and I hope that we never do. But it's an incredible amount of, you know, from World War I, World War II, Great Depression in there some, somewhere, then came our parents, the boomers, and then there's then there's us so um but absolutely there are it's definitely not an excuse for bad behavior it's not an excuse to continue that trauma to continue to accept it um but back then you know it's it's something that they for the most part did the best that they had with uh with their own abilities so 100
1: and this was um, coming from a basis of a behavioralist approach as well where you um, if you have a behavioralist approach to um controlling children or parenting or anything like that it's i need the outside to match my expectations regardless of what's happening on the inside and so i learned i was by every definition Outside, what, to the outside world, I was a good girl. I followed instructions. I listened. I achieved. I studied. I did my homework. I trained. I did all the things right because that's what I needed to do for the validation and approval and connection with my caregivers. But as I said, I was dead inside. That really, really had an impact on me. Mm. Um. I lost my train of thought there,
0: but that's okay. That's anyway,
1: okay. oh, that's what I was saying. So, um, <laughs> when I was, I think about fourteen years old, was the first time I ever got to the point of suicide, where I really felt like I can't do this anymore, and the pressure, always feeling like I wasn't good enough because how can you ever sustain perfect? You can't. Um, I wrote a letter to my dad basically saying it was his fault, (laughs) Um, expressing my hurt, expressing my pain and that I didn't want to be there anymore. And just last year, my dad found that letter over 20 years later. And it was so beautiful to be able to have a conversation with him about it because it really upset him to know that I was feeling that way because he had no idea that I was feeling the way that I was feeling. And in my letter with me expressing how I felt that he didn't love me, why was I never enough? Why can't you love me? He was then able to express to me, I did this because I loved you. I pushed you because I loved you and I wanted more for your life than I could have. It's just that he didn't know how to love well. He didn't know how to love gently and compassionately and supportively and in a nurturing way. So then if he didn't know how to love in that way, how could I possibly know? And guess what? When I became a mum, my nervous system capacity was already preset by who I had become as a result of adapting and suppressing for my parents when I was a child. So then, I was triggered, I was reactive, I was shouting, I was disciplining, doing all the things because I didn't know how to love any differently. That's what love looks
0: like. Wow. Wow, Thanks. big share, big share. And I think, you know, we've been focusing heavily on parenting, right? I think it goes without saying that um, all of these things can also be translated into how you react to friends, colleagues, um, you know how you react to a working environment. Um, and just sort of understanding that where you have set, and it, I think it's sort of really coming back to the most informative part of where you find your true self suppressed happens at childhood. And from there it's a it's a growth journey from there. And mm-hmm. everyone's gonna have it. I've I've had it, my parents, their parents, so forth. My kids will, and I'll be a hand in in that suppression, but hopefully, and I know and I'm actively working towards being a part of their growth as as well. So it's not something that you're going to not go through. It's something that everyone will go through. You mm-hmm. know, it'll probably get easier as it goes on and when i say easier i probably mean different as it goes as it goes on and it's about understanding all of that and then processing it so when you're looking at these things and you're looking at a situation or an event or a person or an action you're perceiving through that lens of your experiences and that's been formed by the bringing up, the generational patterning, the turkey, right? Mm-hmm. The oven's totally. not big enough. Yeah. So it's about how we, under, how we understand that. So, um, and I think, and I, I wouldn't mind just taking just a slight tangent on to perceptions um, and how when perceptions can shatter, it in itself is actually quite a traumatic event. And I'll give you an, an Massively. example. Massively. Um, When I was uh, working for a large dealership corporation, I used to deal with customer complaints and uh, try and resolve them. Uh, One of the most outstanding cases I can remember was someone who had a complaint over a vehicle that he'd purchased from from that dealership group seven years prior. Mm -hmm. And there was an issue with it and it had been parked up for seven years and he wanted something something was wrong with it I had a bent chassis yeah it's a fairly decent issue with it which he claims had happened prior to the purchase of the vehicle but how could we determine that anyway we went through a couple of things to try and determine it was very difficult to determine it however what had happened was I wasn't sort of fully appreciative of the mental state of this particular customer, and so what had happened was, ultimately, when it came down to we couldn't support, or we couldn't assist him because he'd left it out of registration. It couldn't be re-registered because had a bench chassis, and it had been parked up for so, for so long um, that he got very angry. And when he got very angry, he couldn't leave it alone, and mm. what that meant was that he would sit out outside the front of the head office where I worked and stalk people, especially looking for me, to want to follow me home and find out where I live and all of these things. And so, um, and there was one time where I was, I'd go out for runs during lunch break. And I remember one particular time, there was this, I was walking through into the front doors and I remember there was coming in, behind someone standing at reception. I remember the reception, the receptionist looking very scared and looking at me. I'm like, what's going on here? Because she's a lovely lady. Anyway, this guy was sort of talking. He was ranting about the Old Testament, right? Um, and at her. And um, about how things are not gonna be okay if we don't rectify what's going on. And so um, when I then realized who this guy was, I asked him to come outside because clearly it was, you know, something, something was up. Um, And at that point, within words, he threatened me without threatening me. What's about to come is all is all going to be on you is what he told me. Um, And so at that point, the red mist dropped with me, right? I, I call it the red mist. Because when he was when he was standing there doing it, we weren't standing too far apart. But when he said that, if our nose weren't touching it was it was almost that close. I stood right up in front of him and said, Is that a threat? Um and I got at that point because I was, you know, at that point fight or flight was in and I had I was ready to to go the adrenaline pumping from the run all of that and then I started to get some subtle clues okay maybe this guy's not all there and so um, I said it's time to leave you need to get off the property large large property anyway he left and then he came back sat in the car park anyway a lot of these things happened where we had to get um, a restraining order because he just wouldn't leave people alone and so he was standing at the front and it was interesting um and this when I talk about the Bible and all of these things in the context of what he was doing anyway one day out of the blue I found a Bible in the top of our letterbox I thought that's interesting maybe it was like a yeah someone walking around spreading the word right um and this was in between handing him the restraining order and going to court for the restraining order anyway when we got to court the restraining order was to make sure that he just didn't bother me at the address of where I worked hmm anyway as I stood up um, well I, I didn't need to stand I didn't need to well actually I, I do remember I had to you know, part of my testimony just to sort of say what sort of happened and, and just what I want he then jumped up and he said everything he's saying is a lie I did nothing wrong all I did was wait outside his work and drop a Bible at his home. And at that point in time, it's like my stomach sank through past the chair. There was just this absolute what on earth is what? Because so he's become then, a real threat. Yeah. And the, and the funny thing, I'm, I'm a very, when it comes to being personal, I don't like my stuff being out there like, you know, especially back then. Um, And so I was very locked down on any ways people could find me. And so I stood up and then said to the judge, actually, we need to amend this order to now include this home because obviously he's now stalking me. And so it turned out and I found out later on that, um, unless you pay because at, at this at this point in time telstra and I'm not afraid to put it out there in today's day and age you have to pay telstra to keep your number out of a book which seems absurd right it's like the old old turkey thing right privacy yeah. is such a big thing but if you have a telephone number which with if you're with telstra and you have broadband they force you to have a telephone number. And as part of that, it goes in the white pages. So he looked up all the D Masterton's in the area. There was like three and he dropped three, oh. three things. There. So what it, had what it happened for me was this simply. And from there, the response was I couldn't be at work. I got so angry. My nervous system went to probably the point where I was the closest to zero I've ever been in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried to work through it but it was almost to the point where I was going to go into a full rage over the simplest things. Things were going to go flying I just couldn't help. It's like something smashed and so um, I had this really massive anger especially then knowing that it's because Telstra are publishing my stuff in the in the white pages and to stop Mm. that I have to pay them well that worked in the 70s but that's 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 continued and so now um, and it also happened because I was working for this company right so I'm like Telstra's at fault this company's at fault I would not have gone through this if I wasn't working here now I need to put security cameras everywhere and what had happened the biggest perception that shattered and up until then it was firmly in place that I can be in two places at once. That was a perception. The perception of, I can be at work and still protect my wife at the time and my, you know, not even one year old daughter. And the fact that when I leave home, because he would have dropped it off while they were at home and I was at work. And so that was a massive perception shattering. And so that took a little bit of time to to work through because as soon as I hit that, it was the blame was on everybody else. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have gone through this. I shouldn't be having that. You're to blame. You're to blame. You're to blame. I'm gonna take my pound of flesh. This is this is not, not over. Um, but at the time when I spoke to a healthcare professional, a psychologist, they simply said. What has happened is these people exist, people that have psychotic tendencies, disassociative. They are just, and it just so happened you've been introduced to one Mm. at no point were you actually, yeah, you could have been threatened, but you weren't. And um, that you believed you could be at work doing what you're doing and at home protecting, which is simply has never been the case, but you've perceived it that way yeah and so i do believe that when we look at all of these perceptions it's these perceptions that sort of view how we see the world around us and how we Mm -hmm. react and why we we are who we are
1: yes absolutely it's our it's our structure of reality so the crazy thing is and and this number has gone from 2 million to 10 million to 40 million to 200 i think the last time i checked it was like 250 million bits of information in our environment per second now, is that there's more information? No, not really. It's actually that the way, the, the instrumentation that we have to be able to measure things is more and more sensitive over time. So mm. the thing is with a structure of reality, there's hundreds of bits of information available in any given second, but our awareness can only know of about 25, maybe 40 so we'll only see or have, uh, as I said, awareness of an absolute drop in the ocean of those things. And that's what perception ultimately is. Our perception and the way that we see the world is, is structured by the biases that we have in the information that we pick up on. And a perfect example of this is, um, so this is, if you want to learn more about this, look up the reticular activation system, the RAS, RAS. Um, if you buy a new car and all of a sudden you start seeing that car everywhere, that's this in motion, that's this in action. And so our perception of the world is only the way that we see the world through our programming and our biases where our, our mind is telling our brain what to focus on. It's like if I mm. said to you in, in our um tagline where it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If I gave you 10 seconds and said, Dave, I want you to focus on just the E's, count the E's for me. How many E's are there in that sentence? And you went and counted the E's and you could confidently tell me, right now you're counting the E's, aren't you? You could confidently five, tell me. That... Four, <laughs> now, with, one, close ten, your eyes.
0: Three, four, eight, one, two, three, four five. Yep.
1: Close your five. eyes. Five. Mm-hmm. So, how many N's were there? Now, you don't know, do you?
0: No, I'm you n- could n- go n- back okay. and apply logic <laughs> and reasoning
1: and actually, and, and actually try and work it out, but you don't know because you didn't notice the N's because the instruction was to count the E's. And ultimately, if you've got hundreds of millions of bits of information in the environment, you have instructions that are telling you what bits to look at.
0: Hmm.
1: And that's, that's perception what we're actually seeing based upon those instructions creates our structure of reality and perception and when we realize that our structure of reality and the way things are is actually fundamentally wrong and that crashes around us it is as you said it's abrupt it that in itself can be traumatic mm. so that's so big
0: well i think there's and there's there's two sides to this right because there's there's also the positive uh, tilt on all of this there are some of the things that you really enjoy about your personality and the, the, who mm-hmm. you are. So, when you can go count all the E's, by the way, there's five of them, um, and you can do it super quick before anybody else, and that gives you a, an advantage or an edge, right? That's a good thing about you know who I am, the way the way I way I am. But what we're supposed, what we're focusing on is the times in which you sort of go, you react to something, or you do something, or you find yourself in a position. And you're asking yourself the question, probably from more of a desperation point of view or a sorrow point of view or a negative point of view. Why am I here? Why did I do that? Why Why am am I I I the way I am?
1: Why am I like this?
0: (laughs) Right. And I suppose it's when you have that sort of that deep feeling of it's it's what I'm doing. I can be better or this is not truly who I am. You'll get the clues because you'll feel that way. Because if you don't get the clues, you just be happy counting E's all the time. By the way, there's five of them. Um, <laughs> and there'll be no problem. There'll be no need to be better yeah, because everything's, no you, you, you don't no, need, yeah. Totally, and so, there's no gap.
1: So, so I talk about the gap between the person you want to be. How do you want to show up as a parent? How do you want to show up as a business leader? How do you want to show up as a husband or a wife or a friend? If you're showing up, in the way that you want to show up there's no gap Hmm. but the gap that's the bit where there's space to work through because Hmm. anywhere there is a gap in who you are and who you want to be or who you aspire to be anything that is in the middle is basically a product of your adaptations and suppressions because if you weren't didn't, hadn't adapted or hadn't suppressed who you really were you would have been realizing that full potential anyway you would have been mm. who you wanted to be but you're not and so if you're not if you're recognizing that there is a gap between where you want to be or who you want to be I didn't want to be a screaming mum. I didn't want to be a mum who smacked their child. I didn't want to be a wife who controlled her husband. I didn't want to be any of those things. There was a gap between the loving, nurturing, safe relationship that I wanted and the toxic relationship that I had. Mm. So the only way to close that gap is to bring your awareness to why am I the way that I am? First of all, I need to know how am I? How am yeah. I behaving? How do I talk? How do I think? What is what is my perception? What are my biases? And that so leads back to our self-awareness. Yeah. Absolutely. And then being able to undergo a whole heap of processes which actually release all that old data and bring you closer. I call it unbecoming. You're unbecoming the version of yourself that you had to become in order to survive so that you can be more of your full self.
0: Hmm. And I think that and when I first started the, the journey, it's sort of like, boy, I'd be a lot calmer and I wouldn't be so much, I wouldn't be so triggered if people didn't do dumb crap around me, mm-hmm. right? It's sort of like, I'm, only, I'm simply reacting, there's nothing wrong with me, right? Yeah. If, if they doing... would
1: just stop, then yeah. I'd be okay.
0: And I was very justified in it within, within mm-hmm. myself, right? It's sort of like, I'm reacting to it. And it's very true, but I'm bothered by it. And I guess yeah. it's when you sort of start to go. Well, if you're bothered by it, you can't change them. So you could run
1: away you, from them.
0: You could there's all, cut there's them out all, of your life. There's but but you still choose someone.
1: Exactly, you're well, still I'm, choosing I mean, to hold on to your issue.
0: Well, I've got to say, I've yet to find a place, where you can't find some people that just do dumb crap around you. <laughs> exactly. Right? If there is a place, yeah. let me know. <laughs> yeah. But the place um, is
1: within. Once you've healed all the, the parts of you, once you've mm. reconnected to all those lost, m- disintegrated. So I was, dis- think, I,
0: was, I was thinking more like geographical. If we can just sort of I go know, to there. I know, I yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, I'm yet, telling you, yet you yet can't outrun it. it. Ah.
1: You can't outrun it. Tell ya, my husband and I have this conversation mm. quite often where you cannot outrun your problems. You could be on a, you know, secluded island with bottomless cocktails the problems will still be with you, because the problems are not what's out there, the problems what's in here.
0: Mm. And I guess that's the thing. When you when you come to the realization that you are triggered, there's a clue in that. And mm-hmm. if your answer is, I'm simply reacting to my external environment, just know that can also be improved through yourself. Now, is it up to you to fix other people? No, but it's up to you to decide how you want to react to them. Yeah. And you can feel at peace and it is reasonable to feel at peace with things that you judge to be stupid around you because a lot of that stupid crap that was going on it was basically how i was perceiving actions of others it may Mm -hmm. not have necessarily been stupid crap so um but that releasing process boy that's a that's a doozy that's probably for another episode yeah how do we release dr ash not not you (laughs) but how do we release because sort of like Uh can we just Is there a a ritual? Is there a saying? Is there (laughs) there something? Well, we'll
1: go into that other time. But I want to probably wrap this up by Mm. saying, if you are a parent, if you are a leader, one thing that I know, no parent consciously wakes up in the morning and goes, how can I mess up my kids today? Hmm. How can I do a really good job? of screwing them up today, (laughs) making sure they need to see a psychologist for the rest of their life. No one does that. But inadvertently, our parents didn't do that either and their parents didn't do that. Mm. But inadvertently, we've ended up here. And so we need to ask the question, why? And we need to learn from our own experiences. And then we need to have the humility to turn towards that discomfort, face it, and mm. then go how can i do better so that my children don't end up in therapy because of my limited capacity mm. and when we can do that oh my gosh everything changes it's not easy it's not mm. comfortable it's confronting it's it's really you have to shatter everything that you believe mm. but it's worth it and that's conscious parenting that's conscious leadership conscious relationships
0: mm. And I think um, just to add to that, just the, the other side, there are some parents who, or some people that I'm aware of that have had parents that simply just disturbingly put the needs of the parents above the, the children and didn't care and would just really, you know, those situations have happened. Um, and so if you've been one of those people that, you know, how it's, go out to you um and there's a bit more work that you'd probably need to work through but this all of this still does apply it doesn't Mm -hmm. make that parent right in in doing that because i've seen some selfish behaviors yeah but they
1: are that way for a reason they are that way because absolutely that's the data in their nervous system
0: absolutely they're being
1: driven they literally Mm. can't help it consciously yeah. So oh, massive episode,
0: Dave. I know, I know. It's sort of like <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's gone all over the place. Lots of storytelling in this one, I must say.
1: Lots of storytelling. So I've really done too much of that. But I'm I'll,
0: next- I'll interested to hear from everyone. Do you want to hear more stories? Do you want us to leave the stories out more focus on the the general techniques? Do you want to hear more about us? You know, um, mm. let us know in the comments. Um, we be seen on YouTube, there's a comments box on the podcast, or even Hedge just through the, through the socials. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because this is this is going to be an evolving project. We've been talking about a lot of concepts that we're sort of building up mm. on, sort of like the, the foundation. And if you go back over the last, I think this is what episode, I have to look at the, yep, yeah, 10, with five E's in it. Um, episode 10. That... Um, you know, you go back on all of those and we're going through so many different things to help unpack that. Let us know where you want, um, what you want to hear.
1: Yeah. And our next episode, hang out for it because we are going to go even further in this conversation of adaptation and nervous system regulation and capacity because we're going to be talking about comfort zones.
0: Mm. Where's Looking that, forward to uh, it. Where's that island with the margaritas? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fantastic, All right. Ash. Um, thank you very much. My name's David Masterton, Ashley Morland, Remind Podcast. See you next time. Thank you guys,
1: bye. Bye bye.